0: I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today I'm talking to Javier and Kelly Amaya from Boston, Massachusetts. Javier and Kelly became disciples in 1983 while in college. Javier graduated from Brown University with a degree in biomedical engineering, and Kelly from Boston College with a degree in psychology and a concentration in Spanish. Javier later obtained his master's degree in Christian Ministries from Harding University. Javier and Kelly were high school sweethearts and married in 1986. They're the parents of three adult children and three grandchildren. The Amayas have served in the full-time ministry for 31 years, and their journey has taken them from Boston to Florida, Mexico, Guatemala, Los Angeles, and then they returned to Boston in 2011 to lead the Boston Spanish ministry. Their passion is to see lives transformed by the power of God, and to be used by God to raise up leaders for service in his kingdom. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. I just came back this past week from an awesome men's retreat. I guess it's a week or so ago. We had such a great time, and I think I shared about it in episode 150. So many guys came out, more, more people than ever, people from Flagstaff and as far away as uh, Phoenix and Oregon we had people there from New York. It was it was an awesome time. And one of the great things is a year ago when we had the men's retreat, we didn't have really an official church in Flagstaff, Arizona. We had eight disciples there led by an amazing and faithful retired person, Ken Burford and his wife Debbie, but they'd held on for years just trying to keep the the fire burning, so to speak. And yet last year, we formed a team, and I've shared about it many times on this podcast. And with that starting eight, a team went up there, and now the church is over 30 disciples, and they've got what, 50 to 60 people meeting on Sundays. And I just talked to Brian over the weekend, who leads a church, and they've got 20 studies going on right now. And it's just really thrilling what's happening. So many college students, marrieds and singles who are studying the Bible. The brothers are on fire. They had a whole contingent. They had eight, people, eight men just come to the men's retreat who are disciples. Last year, they only had eight disciples total in the entire church. So it was so gratifying to see God work. And I want to say thank you for spreading the word about that Flagstaff mission team, because through that, uh, people people join the team and it continues to grow. So please pray for the work there in Flagstaff. It's been really thrilling. Please pray that they can get to 50 disciples at the end of their first year. That's Brian's goal. That would be awesome to see it grow and just take off and, and double. So, Also, I want to let you know that I'm still looking for an associate ministry couple. And if you are interested and have a little bit of experience in the ministry, please email me. Um, someone who's got about three years of ministry experience. Kelsey and Jelaine Han are going back to China. He's my associate minister. And it's been an amazing year having them here. And Kevin and Erica Lou, who came with them, who've been leading the campus, are going to be working as a shepherding, in a shepherding role on campus, and so we're also looking for a campus ministry intern or leader. So if you've got interest in that, please email me, please contact me, I'd love to talk to you. Kelly and Javier, it's great to talk to you, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, it's great to be with you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, we have a connection through your kids, and we're going to talk more about that, but Let me ask you, how did you guys first meet?
2: Well, we first met um, when we were in high school and I was actually his best friend's girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a song about that, (laughs) but I was his best friend's girlfriend. I remember seeing him play soccer and I was really impressed because he was probably the only Latino out there on the field in a very American town and, um, and I saw him playing soccer, and I took notice. And um, then when his best friend broke up with me, mm-hmm. Javier came to console me. <laughs> and he's
1: and I've been st- at it since
2: then. <laughs> yeah, that's his story. That's his story. That He's still <laughs> consoling me many,
0: many years later.
2: We So we dated in high school um, and then through college. And afterwards, we dated over seven years.
0: That's a long time. Okay.
1: Three and a half before we were Christians and then three and a half as Christians.
0: Okay. Yeah. So let's talk more about that. So Javier, you went to Brown and and Kelly, you yeah. went to, to Boston College. These are both like amazing elite Ivy League schools. And how'd you become Christians?
2: Um, I was actually reached out to, I decided... I was religious and I knew I needed to be going to some church while I was in Boston. So I decided I was going to go to a different church every weekend until I found one that I liked. And I went to one and didn't like it at all. And then God put a um, Bolivian um, young man that was um, going to Boston College with me in my path. And he invited me to a Bible talk. And so I started going to Bible talk and it was just incredible because there were very few, very, very few Latinos, maybe a handful at Boston College. But I really see it as God's hand, how he had a Latino reach out to me. I became a Christian. And then, of course, um, Bernardo Casares, that was his name. And he then helped reach out to Javier. And I dragged Javier along with me to the campus devotionals. (laughs) And he wasn't too into it at first, but he really had an open heart.
1: Yeah, I was the boyfriend that, you know, people said, well, that's kind of when you got to count the cost. And uh, really, it was seeing her transformation that drew me in Uh, at her baptism. uh, I went forward really just to go be curious about the baptism. But at the time, the church would have also people come forward for prayers. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to study the Bible. And I was like, whatever. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) And so that's how I started studying the Bible. And then I'd come from Providence to Boston every weekend. Uh, to go to Campus Devo on Friday, Saturday, do a study, uh, Sunday, go to church, and then go back uh, to Brown. And by Wednesday, I'd be like, ah, this is crazy. What am I doing? But uh, then she'd call me, she'd encourage me, I'd show up to Friday again, and I'd keep going. And then it was just a matter of the studies and becoming a Christian.
0: Wow. Okay. How far is that from Providence to Boston? It's it's
1: not that far. It's two states. Uh, But but Providence, Rhode Island and, and Massachusetts are really close to each other. So it's an hour and change, an hour and a half.
2: We didn't have cars, though.
1: Yes, that that was a challenge.
2: Was walk to the bus station, take the bus to the T to get places. And so it, it was quite the journey and sacrifice of his time when he was quite stressed out studying biomedical engineering at Brown. Oh, oh
1: and the, the challenge was then when I became a Christian, inviting my friends, i go, you want to go to church?
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> Let's go to another state <laughs> to go to church. they looked at me like, what are you, are you crazy?
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. So you studied the Bible. Once Kelly got baptized, that kind of spurred you on to go, okay, I better, Correct. you know, if I, if I want to keep this relationship, I need to get serious, I guess, about this. Now, you guys both came from elite colleges. Now, you, you've made a funny face there, Kelly. Maybe Boston College is not a, a considered not an, an Ivy, Ivy League. I see. Okay.
2: But it is awesome. Yes. I, it's,
0: <laughs> it's definitely an elite college, and an ex, both are expensive colleges, for sure, private yeah. colleges. What was your ambition before you became Christians? I mean, if someone were to ask you guys what you were planning on doing prior to becoming Christians with your future, what, what would you have yeah. told them?
2: I always wanted to become a social worker or psychologist and um, help people. That was a passion I had since I was a kid, and so my goal when I went to Boston College um, was to become a psychologist and be able to do therapy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for me, was
0: let me just let me just tag on a question here: What was your attraction to? You know, you mentioned that you noticed that. Uh, in high school that Javier was a great soccer player. And then you met this, uh, is it Colombian or Bolivian? A Bolivian. Okay. Was there, and then you got a, a, a concentration in Spanish. Tell me what was the oh, attraction? Well, Javier's there?
2: Colombian. Javier's from okay. Colombia. Mm-hmm. The boy that reached out to me at Boston college, he was from Bolivia. Uh huh. Okay. But yeah, I got a concentration in Spanish. You know, when I was a little girl, my mom was a single mom. And when I was about seven years old, she was just curious. No one in my family ever spoke a word of Spanish, but my mom had it in her mind that she just wanted to take a Spanish class. She was curious. So since she didn't have a babysitter for me, she asked the professor at the community college if she could bring me along. So it was me with a classroom full of adults but I was learning it with my mom. Then we I got chicken pox. We had to drop out of the class. <laughs> but she always told me, when you can study a language, you need to study Spanish because it's going to be very important in the future. Oh my so gosh. I just always assumed when I can, I'll have to study Spanish. And that's what I did. And I loved it. And I was very attracted to Latin America, which is interesting. In, in Spanish class, they always talk to you about Spain. And right. I wasn't interested in Spain. I was right. drawn to Latin America never, probably never even knew a Latin American until, (laughs) until later, but it was just something I really think God put in my heart through my mom when I was a little kid.
0: Isn't that crazy? It's almost like your mom is a prophet. This is going to be very important. Uh And she was exactly right. I mean, it's, it's just funny looking at you uh, through the zoom here. I mean, you're as white as white can be. It's just, it's so funny (laughs) (laughs) that, you know, how God worked that out for you to have that interest and how it worked out in his plan. So I'm sorry for cutting you off, uh, Javier. What was your no, that's ambition? Good. And
1: actually, in our high school, there were literally, if, if there were three Latinos in the whole town, that was about it. So <laughs> it's pretty striking that she, you know, she oriented herself to the the very few of us. <laughs> what was your amb- uh So it, you asked uh, in terms of ambition. I was raised to be an executive. I mean, my dad was a corporate executive and that was the track I was on. Um, my ambition was to be at least a vice president for a corporate uh, 500 Fortune 500 company, uh, if not to be the CEO. I mean, that was very much what I was targeted towards. Um,
2: he literally told me, "Power and money is what I
0: want." <laughs> this is before I was a Christian. I was 16 at the time when I said that. I was but yes. <laughs> okay, so. You were very clear on your your goals and ambitions. I I respect that. Now, why did you guys choose ministry? I mean, this is we're you're, we're making a hundred eighty degree turn here. And as an add on to that question, what would your family think of that?
1: Well, actually, we we uh, after college, we both uh, worked in our fields. Uh, so I had a chance to work for IBM for five years, and God blessed me immensely. I did very very well in those five years. Uh, to the extent that uh, the vice president for Latin America met with me and said uh, what do you want and they they basically had this program where uh, vice presidents would would kind of godfather uh, up-and-comers wow. and they they'd choose them uh, and so I said well I want your job
0: and he <laughs> said uh, well
1: it's going to take you about 15 years but you've got the pedigree for it mm. you've got the education for it you've got the background uh, and actually he was an acquaintance of my father so because the 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 at that level of executives for Latin America, they kind of know each other. Um, and so he knew about that interview. And uh, then uh, after that interview was when I, when we were asked to go into the ministry. So I, I knew definitely the cost of what I was giving up uh, in going into the ministry. That's for sure. Wow.
2: Yeah. And I think, why did we choose ministry? I think ministry chose us. I think I would have um, dreamt as a young girl I was I was brought up in a Protestant church and I I dreamt of helping people I dreamt of like I said later being a psychologist but I had dreamt also of being a, a missionary something where I could help people in the world I knew there was a lot of pain in the world that was my heart that was not Javier's thinking but when we became Christians you know when you study the Bible when you understand that the greatest problem in this world is people are lost and need to know god then it changes everything Mm. and i think although javier then was working in his career as a as a christian as a disciple he was very passionate about his faith and so we would go to work every day but he would literally pray through all of his clients at ibm god blessed him so much But at 5 p.m., he was out the door and everyone thought he was crazy and that he was going to fail because he wasn't putting in the hours and other young salespeople were. But he would leave at 5 p.m. and he was one of the best in the country as far as sales. But the reason he left at 5 p.m. is he knew that he had more important things to do in the evening. So we would disciple people, study the Bible with people in the evenings. And it was our passion. And we dreamt, you know, there would be world mission seminars back then. And we would dream about the churches in Latin America being planted and really wanting to help take the gospel to other places in the world. So it was a dream for those years. But when the opportunity came, it was still a big, big decision, especially for him.
1: And I guess a, a, a story that kind of always reminds me of why I made the decision was the same month we studied the Bible with a young man. His name's Roberto. He became a Christian and two weeks later, he was found dead at Harvard. And yeah, uh, 18 years old. Yeah, at the time he was 18, that same month, I sold three computers that were worth a ton of money because computers were pretty big at that time. And I had a huge commission, met with CEOs, but I always thought who will remember me long-term. And I always think, you know, one day I get to heaven, Roberto's going to welcome me. Wow. Uh, those three CEOs, they don't remember me. They don't remember my name. They don't remember what, that was all about they just remembered they paid for a computer and so impact is really the word as to why the decision because i thought well i've been blessed in an amazing way in my life we have and so as i think of what's this life's impact going to be about it made clear sense to me that it's about souls and what will it be at the at the other side of eternity
0: gosh that that just brings tears to my eyes i you know that's one of the reasons why I respect you guys so much is the sacrifice. And what an incredible example. You remind me of some people that have gone back into ministry later in life, Rusty and Kim Snell from Toledo, Ohio. I know that there's some um, Shannon Van Zee from si- Sioux Falls. He's planning a church in, in South Dakota. And I just respect that so much because it's so, I know how greed works in me. I know how ambition works in me and it's a tough decision and it's very impressive. I want to come back to that and talk about that a little bit more in the future. What'd your family think about this decision?
1: Um, well, my that was the hardest um decision for my family. Uh becoming a Christian, I thought would have been a hard one. And actually when I when I became a Christian, I thought, "Oh, they're going to disinherit me." Because I come from a pretty uh um traditional uh Latino family. And I thought, well, there goes Brown, because I'm not going to be able to fund it. <laughs> but they didn't. They were supportive at that time. Um, then when, when leaving the career, there were a lot of conversations. And dad grilled me, uh, which was great. He grilled me, because at the time, Diana was already born. And so his concern was, well, what's going to happen with your kids in the future and so forth? Um, you know, they had provided for for us an amazing opportunity of any, co- any school, any college, any doors wide open. And so I knew that this decision would mean that our kids would not necessarily be able to have the same kind of open doors uh, of opportunities of what I had had, but uh, they were supportive after they were first, uh, uh, they questioned it quite a bit.
0: Wow. Okay. Can you give me an overview, a 30,000 foot level kind of scope of what where you've been in the ministry since that time?
2: Sure. You or me? Yeah, Kim. Okay. So we went into the full-time ministry in Boston, and we were actually leading the Spanish ministry then. And um, the leader that was there wanted to become a doctor. And so we switched places. He went back to school and into the professional world. We went into the full-time ministry. Um, We took on more and more responsibility in Boston pretty quickly. And then we... um, were sent to Florida for eight weeks, supposedly, um, on our way to Mexico. But we ended up there for a year, and then we went to Mexico. Um, six months later, we were sent to Guatemala for the rest of our lives. Ended up there for six months. <laughs> <laughs> then went back to Mexico and actually worked for Hope Worldwide and led a large group of a church in Mexico City for um a number of years about five and a half more years and then we went to la and we were still working for hope worldwide uh, and the church and um then in 2003 we were asked we stopped working with hope worldwide and started leading one of the regions in the la church in a time of crisis and we were there in la for a total of 11 years and um Then in a time of crisis, Boston asked us to come back to Boston to lead the Spanish ministry again, full circle. And we've been here back in Boston another 11 years now.
0: Okay, so were you on the Mexico City mission planting?
2: No, no, no. no. Mm -mm. When we got to Mexico City, the church had been there, I don't know how many years, but there were already about 800 members in Mexico City when we got there.
0: Okay, so it was already it had grown quite, quite, a bit, pretty explosive. Yeah. I remember when that went yeah, out. Yeah, we
1: got to see it grow from eight hundred to three thousand during five years. That
0: was amazing. That's amazing. So when did you? Okay, it was planted in nineteen eighty six, right? With Phil Lamb, yes. Phil and Donald Lamb. And then when did when did you guys get there?
1: Ninety was it ninety one?
2: No, I think it was December of ninety three okay so seven
0: seven years it had grown to 800 which is 94
2: december of 94 yeah
0: okay Okay. so you've had tons of of experiences what what was one of the toughest times for you in the ministry and how did you work your way through it
1: (laughs) you want to go first
2: oh boy there have been many (laughs) I think um, we've held on to God, you know, I think just holding on to God, holding on to God's word. I think one of the toughest times was the time that we were in Florida and there was a very, very unhealthy dynamic in the leadership of the church. And on top of that, we were young and not too smart about some things, and our marriage wasn't in a good place. I don't even think we realized it. And what we were doing, out of the goodness of our hearts, but ignorance, (laughs) um, was putting the ministry, especially Javier was putting the ministry first, before marriage, before family. And it was a very unhealthy dynamic in the church. And so you know, overworked and not keeping priorities in order. Finally, that came to a head toward the end of that year that we were there. And we went and asked for help. And God put a couple in our path that helped us to just get back to our priorities, which we had learned really well in Boston. You know, God first, take care of your marriage, take care of your children, and then the other things will come, you know, keep things in order. So we got straightened out and we, I think though, that that was good in the sense that it taught us a huge lesson. I mean, we came out of that year, we are never going to repeat that mistake and that the pull is always there, the needs in the ministry. Are always overwhelming. It doesn't matter if you lead a church of fifty or five hundred. Right. There's always more needs than you can meet. Right. But you know, we learned that God, God has His job, and we have our <laughs> job, and we got to keep our priorities in order. But I think that was one of the most challenging times. Wow. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I would say, other than that, I mean, as as uh, she mentioned, there's been multiple, and we've gone into multiple situations because of crises. Mm-hmm. so settling crises out has actually become a, a strength of ours um but i would say one of the hardest ones for me was finding division with within the the church and mm-hmm. a group getting divisive and uh uh losing trust and questioning uh motives questioning integrity questioning even the truth of the word uh, that was quite tough uh and how overcoming it uh, bringing other people in, seeking advice, uh, not doing, not facing it alone.
0: Right, right. Well, that was certainly seen in two thousand three. In the aftermath of of that, um, you know, there was a lot of certainly a lot of challenges. I don't know if we have time to get into all that, but I've I've been there, and it's it is really yeah. really challenging. Okay. Can you, sh- on the flip side of that, that you know, other than the tough times, can you share about a time or two that you saw God's power, and His presence in a very clear way? You just felt like, whoa, that's I can see the footsteps of God right here.
1: Sure. Um, one of the greatest joys of uh, our ministry life was we went into Guatemala when it was six months old as a church, and at the time the church had 80 members, and so within the next six months. We got to see it go from 80 to 120 in six months.
0: Wow, that's awesome. And it
1: it was so clear to us, this is God at work. Mm. Because we know ourselves, we know our weaknesses, and we knew those 80 people and what they really had in terms of base and uh, depth and so forth. And it was just amazing to see God uh, do that. I mean, the the anniversary service, uh, we had 640 or something like that in attendance. (sighs) We're like where are these people coming from? Yeah. And it was just so evident, oh, this is God at work. There is no question. So that that's one that always has kept a very dear place in my heart.
2: Um, I think there's a lot, but I think another one that we wanted to share about is, we we. it's laughable. We're, we were foreigners in Mexico City. And at one point we were asked to stop leading a super region and lead a Bible talk of arts and media so the artists (laughs) we couldn't have named one single artist i think
1: and neither one of us by nature is really artistic (laughs) she is way more than me well i don't
2: know we don't even know movie stars and musical groups in the united states Mm -hmm. leave alone in mexico right right? so we were asked to lead that and so we we were given a group of people that were kind of, you know, very artistic, creative people. They didn't get along with each other. They were a misfit group of people to say the least. And it was, we kind of looked around at each other. There were eight people and we're like, oh my goodness, we need God. And we started praying, but they were very evangelistic. And that group became such a family. And we saw that group grow to 26 people in no time. I mean, it was a year of fruitfulness, um, singles, young singles, older singles, single mothers, married couples became disciples. It was just so much fun. And we did meet a number of very famous people in the process, got to share our faith with them because we were also working with Hope Worldwide. And so we would take people, we would take our little ragtag group to serve the poor. And we also um, were doing fundraisers and reached out to artists that did fundraisers with us. But it was just the power of God. It was really, really beautiful how God can take a weak group of people that are very human and then do great things with them. And that's just one of many, you know, miracles we've seen God do over the years.
0: Right. That is so cool. I know I I know your daughter Diana's got an incredible voice. So there must be some some artistic passion in there. I just gotta ask you. I, and yeah,
1: that comes from Kelly's mom. Both girls have an amazing yeah, voice and it comes from Kelly's mom.
0: Right. Okay. that's, that's fantastic. Now, can you, um, I, I there's a lot of questions that, that pop up here. One, Javier, how come you never went back to Columbia? That's, that's the, the where your family comes from. Why? Great question. It, it Actually, goes, when we left
1: Boston, this was a, an edit I was going to make. We left Boston with the plan to go leave Columbia. And so we went to Florida. But uh, things in, in Colombia were going well enough that they didn't need us there. Instead, they, we were sent to Mexico. So it, it's always been a, a you know something in my heart thinking, how do we help Colombia? And uh, funny you should ask, because I'm going next week to, I was invited to go uh, do their 30th anniversary service. And so it's really a, a, a very special moment. And I told the guys, I met with them actually this morning, um, that I've been praying for them before they were spiritually born because I've been praying for this church since I was a Christian. Mm. So it's, yeah. it's great to uh, reconnect there. And I shared with them, you know, how uh, we stay very, very connected with Mexico in particular. We just, we have a discipleship relationship with the leadership of Mexico city. Um, and uh, we've been involved with that for decades. And I said to the Columbia guys, you know, part of my coming here is is really cause uh, I felt, uh, a yearning to help colombia in some way and so they were like yeah let's build this relationship so that that's really good
0: that is so cool i mean especially during the 80s with pablo escobar and it must have been something on your mind at that time was your what was your family thinking during that time you know the thought of maybe going back to colombia uh, were they worried about you if that was your intention at that time
1: yeah, yeah, they were. And actually, when we went to Mexico, that was also a concern because we left them. I mean, they're, they were here in Connecticut, close by in Connecticut. And so when we went to Latin America, uh, it was not only the cost of the distance of us moving, but also the cost of them not being able to see their grandchildren and so forth. Uh, so e- in either one, in both, in the places we've gone, there's been a bit of concern about even uh, our safety because also when we moved to Guatemala, it was during Guatemala going through a civil war And so there was quite a bit of concern of what are you doing, taking this lily white wife and these two girls at the time (laughs) to, to this place, but God's protected us in an amazing way.
2: I think we were so excited about the mission and why we were there. And also I'm just so naive. I think I was kind of oblivious to the dangers. Many times I look back on some things that I've done so many times and I say only God and His angels took care of me because I was so naive and really didn't know what I was doing. But mm-hmm. we really um, were protected by I mean, God.
0: Sure. I just, I just gotta say, you guys are so gutsy. I mean, growing up in the '70s and '80s and watching on the evening news, there was always a civil war, war happening in Central America, whether it was uh, it was a Panama with. General Noriega, and then there was the Sandinistas in El Salvador. I mean, yep. Guatemala was yep. unstable. I mean, just crazy. It's so gutsy of you guys to go down there. I mean, I read somewhere that El Salvador was the third most dangerous city in in, in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, San Pedro
1: Sula and San Salvador are two of the most dangerous ones,
0: yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Anyways.
1: You know, part of our, our heart was also moved by the Spanish ministry here in Boston because a lot of the people the reason this ministry got started was the people that were in those countries that migrated uh because of just safety and so that's why they were here. Right. And so we learned very much firsthand from their lives what they the risk they faced and uh so that even pulls at our hearts to say well how can we help? Oh
0: yeah. Okay. So here's a question why aren't you still in Central or South America I mean you're, you're back in Boston and I think there's probably no one more qualified for you to to lead a church in anywhere in Central or South America um maybe that's not the best question but wh- why'd you go back to Boston
1: well a couple well let's let's start with uh why not being in Latin America right now right um at, we moved the whole leadership um main leadership of the world sector at the time. That's what the structure was. Um, and part of the intent was to have nationals lead their own countries. Okay. Uh, and to make sure we develop national leadership. Honestly, I wish we had done it maybe a little later, but, but but praise God that there were nationals that could rise up. I think there was a little bit more training to have taken place for that transition to have been better. But even financially, uh, in order to help the work in Latin America, we needed a stronger base from the states, got it. Uh, also, our mission model at the time was uh, we 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 needed to have it funded more through nationals than through inter- internationals. It gets quite quite a bit more expensive to fund internationals uh, in in Latin America. Um, and once once you develop nationals, I think that's the key. I think what we've done since then has been a support um, dynamic that's been needed as well. I think. There's been at times when we've needed to bring leaders up and it was important to have a place where they could come to, to be ministered to here in the state. So we could be that kind of relationship, but also even in developing relationships up here, we could bring some of the resources to help them, mm-hmm. whether it be bringing elders down or even uh, crisis management down. And lately even uh, developing schools of missions through our being up here, uh, we've developed the relationships so that, uh Schools of missions can then go down there. So, for example, uh, the Beam Fund has a school of missions here in Boston, and as a result of the relationships built there, we uh, then were able to take uh, uh, a school of missions to be developed in Mexico City. Had we only been in Latin America, we wouldn't have the relationships to build those kinds of bridges. And I think in that, some of our the, the gift sets we have permit those bridges to be built. Mm That other than that, they just don't happen Mm -hmm. Uh, yet. There's, there's definitely a a tug of um, uh, seeing the need and feeling, well, how do we help? Uh, Now the challenge is we have kids and grandchildren. And so that's another factor. Oh boy.
0: (laughs) I know what that's like. That's for sure. So in, and I saw that being in Japan, the, you know, the expense of having an expat living in the country is way higher than being able to live on the, the local economy. There's just differences. Even if you're getting paid hardly anything compared to what you could have been back in the States, it's still much more expensive than, than the local economy. So um, tell me about the Spanish ministry in Boston. What's going good. What's, what's working. Give give me some highlights.
2: Well, um, even when you asked about the question about why aren't we in central or South America, I was thinking we are, it's just in Boston. (laughs) There are, yeah, I mean, Talk about, I'll get on a soapbox very, very quickly when it comes to Latin ministries. I think there's a huge need. And in the Boston church, what you think about Boston, Massachusetts, and New England, you don't think of very many Latinos being there. Definitely not. Yet there's thousands and thousands of Latinos that need to know God, right? They need to know the truth. And there's um, over 400, about 420 members um, of the Boston church are in the two Spanish regions. We, we had one and split it into two regions. We hired a couple from Mexico city um, who leads the Spanish south and we, and we lead Spanish north. And we have um, an elder and his wife and they're wonderful. We have another couple who has served as an elder and um, is not at this time, but they're still serving God passionately. Um, we have a good-sized campus ministry now in our region. Um, they speak Spanglish very well. We've been doing more translating recently because they love our ministry, but they've baptized a few people who don't speak Spanish, so mm. but they're still coming. Um, but it's a super international group. I mean, I was trained to be a missionary by just being part of the Spanish ministry before we ever went to Latin America wow. because here Depending on whose house you go to, you feel like you're in Colombia or Puerto Rico or El Salvador or, you know, just a different country all the time. So it's really an incredibly um, international experience to just be in this ministry. And it's a it's an incredible group of people. Um, Some many people are needy, quite needy. They come here with nothing as immigrants, um, to find a better life and to be able to have a better life for their children. Um, And then many of them have become American citizens and learned English and are homeowners and business owners. And so when we left Boston for almost 20 years and came back, we found some of the same people had really progressed in their life and in their faith and it was really inspiring, but it's quite an awesome Passionate, emotional, um, great fellowship in a Spanish ministry. It's an incredible ministry.
1: And I think one of the it, it's it's pretty amazing to consider if in Boston, of such a New England town, <laughs> there can be over four hundred uh, Spanish speaking disciples. And then what would happen in other cities that are way more Latinos? Right. It, I I believe it could be thousands upon thousands. Right. Um, so, you know wh- wh- that to us, that's one of the highlights of saying, "Well, if this can happen here, how much more could ha- could happen in other cities?"
0: Right. Okay. Perfect segue into my next question. What advice would you give for someone thinking about a Spanish ministry in their church? And this, I mean, I'm in Tucson. We are 90 miles from the border, really close. Um, we've thought about it. In fact, we've we had a couple come out and visit who was inter- they were interested in moving here. It didn't, didn't work out, Spanish speaking couple. Um, but it's, it's interesting because when I talk to different ministers and try to get advice about a Spanish ministry, I get different opinions. I talked to some ministers and like no Spanish ministry. We don't have it. We don't want it. It, you know, it's going to cause division in your church. Um, it's not good. And, these are high profile leaders. They're not, you know, just uh, bumpkins. They really know what they're doing, but they have very strong opinions. And then other people like, Oh, absolutely. Should have had one 10 years ago. Why don't you have one yet? And so I'd like to know from you and um, your expertise, what, what advice would you give?
1: I think the first thing is it's really sad to hear that thought that there's anything, any connection between Spanish ministry and divisive. And Uh, That's that's very sad to me to hear that. I understand it, but I'm I'm saddened by it.
2: I I would say about that. And I and I've heard that, too, over the years. And I have known Spanish ministries that have not gone well and that some people have been um, disunified with the church leadership. But I would ask, has that happened more with English speaking ministries or with Spanish speaking ministries? Mm. Mm -hmm. That's happened much more frequently within American English speaking ministries. There will be divisions because people are sinners that will happen sometimes. And so I think that the reason that um, people feel that fear is the lack of relationship, the lack of building, building relationships, deep relationships and not, and not knowing enough. and, if you hear of one, you could attribute it to being a Spanish ministry, as opposed to just attributing it to human beings, sometimes have sin, human beings are sometimes disunified. But the, um, the need is immense. And with good relationships, great unity and um, great support of a more diverse and dynamic church can be built. And we see that here in Boston. We get to live that here in Boston.
1: So in terms of advice, um, you know, I think uh, I'll, I'll mention two names, uh, Marty Fuque and Wyndham Shaw. <laughs> I think uh, if you look at the two strongest Spanish speaking ministries in the nation, LA and Boston would be it. And I would attest it to the relationship between uh, a significant leader in the church and his devotion and commitment to it and then the people that are trained there. Rafael Lua was trained by Marty, I was trained by Wyndham. Uh, As as a result of the the depth of that connection and those relationships, the trust that gets built into that ministry, it's the same, it's the exact same church, it's just in a different language. Hmm. Now it has its flavor, it's got its personality, it's got its huge strengths, but it also has its particular weaknesses. And I think it's vital that uh, that main leader commits to it and decides i'm going to build the relationship um, with the per- the people, the person and the people, the group that are going to be leading it and i'm in it for the long haul. If you're in it for the long haul, you'll journey through the highs because we we tend to provide fruit in I, I call it more like grapes more than apples. You know, we don't come one at a time, we come in clusters. And so when the result of that, it's quite inspiring to see, you know, 10, 20, 30 baptisms all of a sudden. But in the same way, you know, a, a cluster of grapes can also sour. And so they, they need to be taken care of. Uh, so there will be a journey through it. But I think it, it the payoff is immense if there's that commitment.
2: I think something else that um, we could go on about this one forever, but I think something else that really, really um, is crucial in my opinion and did happen in LA and especially in Boston was that those ministries started by finding some young, willing disciples who were completely bilingual and specifically from the campuses. Um, You can find a lot of very educated, motivated, zealous, young Latinos in the campuses around the country. And those are the people that are completely bilingual and can connect with the main leadership of a church in English and then start a Spanish ministry, but with unity and communication. If you try to find someone who barely speaks English and make them a leader, there's going to be from the start more complication, more right. a lack of communication. So I think that was a great benefit in Boston. Um, you know, they got together, the all the Spanish speakers and said, we see the need in the community. There's people out there that need to be converted. They speak Spanish. We want you to start the Spanish ministry, but it was a group of bilingual people who had been converted on the campuses primarily. And so that group had friendships with the English speaking ministry. And it was always seen as one church Hmm. with a solid base. Then later, the non-English speakers were converted, but the connection was always there and still is with the the bigger church.
1: I think the mindset of mission is key. It's interesting. There's a our, our movement has an enormous value on missions. And so you would never say we're not going to go plant a church in Bogota or in Mexico City. Uh, we would say we're going there. Yet we have cities of millions of Latinos in U.S. that, that under the basically, no, we're not going to go there and we're not going to reach out to those people. And so in our own country, there's there's a whole there, there's whole mission fields to be established.
0: Right. Right. That's very powerful. So what I hear you saying is, first of all, the primary leader of the church has to be connected to his protege who leads a Spanish ministry. There, there's got to be right. the time spent, the commitment, the emotional connection to to raise up that person. And then, Kelly, you said you got to find people who are completely bilingual, typically younger on on campus who feel absolutely comfortable in both an English environment and a Spanish environment. And they can bridge the gap between the the pre- predominantly English speaking church and the Spanish speaking ministry. Yeah. And yeah, then- and
1: the third thing to that, I'd say, is I call them pillars. That you need you need some pillar couples, basically deacon, deacon kind of people who are gonna be. Uh, they might not be as bilingual, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they will be pillars to this ministry long term, because they're the real you know disciples and make disciples and make disciples, and it's amazing to see how they'll rise up in that ministry where they might not even make it spiritually in another ministry. Right. Both, you know, both of the couples that have become elders in our ministry, I don't know that they would have made it in another place. Yeah. I feel Much like, less risen up to that level.
0: I just know in Tucson, I feel like such an incredible burden to get a Spanish ministry going because we've got Spanish speakers in our church that have been listening to headsets and translation for years. And I just, I, I did that in Japan for 10 years and it's, you you get about thirty percent of the lesson. I mean, you might get the right a little bit of the understanding, but you miss so much. It's just so empty mm-hmm. in so many ways. And so, who do
1: you draw in? Exactly it's really hard to draw in other people saying, Hi, come be in the in the you know, this setup.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we're praying about that and keep us in your prayers Amen. about that. Changing the channel. And I
2: just wanted to mention, Rob, the reason I mentioned the campuses, I think. Young people who are Latinos or who are like me, not Latina, but with a Latina heart, um, who are converted in the campus, they can serve as leaders in English-speaking ministries all around the country and other places. You know, They have the ability to do it in English, but they're the only ones that could do it in Spanish. So I would, ho- I would like to persuade more church leaders to see that those people are very special and they can touch uh, the fastest growing demographic in the U.S., which mm. is the Latinos. Right. They multiply. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they multiply quickly. They have lots of children. <laughs> and um, those those young people, if they're given the dream, you know, they some of them, sadly, Latinos who I've reached out to and tried to persuade to pursue Spanish ministries have said, I don't want to be seen as only being able to do Spanish ministry. Mm -hmm. That breaks my heart because I love the Latinos in this country passionately. I want them to be saved. And I have told them, it's not that you can only do it in Spanish. Of course, you can do it in English. But you are the only one that can do it in Spanish. These other people cannot do that. Right. And so I think they need to see um, church leaders help these young people who can speak Spanish. And there's other cultures, too, that need to be highlighted and and made to see that this is a very precious um, calling that God could be giving them. Um, We're 59 years old. And I think who are the next um, ministers to lead powerful Spanish ministries all around the country in places where there's there's cities that there, there's more Latinos than there are non-Latinos. Right. Right. So anyway, I'll stop. There you go. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Let me let me change the channel. You guys have amazing kids. You're you're like I mentioned earlier. Your two daughters, Diana and Elena, were on our mission planting for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. incredible voices. I mean, super, they, it was just such a blessing to have them join the team. I think Deanna, Deanna came on the first wave. Elena came a little bit later. They met their husbands on the team or else they, they dated on the Mm -hmm. team. They got married. Um, just awesome. In fact, it's funny, Kelly, when I look at you, I feel like I'm talking to Deanna. It's such a weird, <laughs> I mean, except for the complexion, you guys look so much, Deanna looks so much like it's, it's just kind of eerie a little bit. Like this is, <laughs> this is really cool. Anyway, um, what advice would you give for a person who's trying to do ministry and at the same time raising great kids? That's a very common question I get. It's like, how do I do this? How do I do ministry with kids It's challenging both fathers and mothers are asking the question.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think don't make the mistake that we made when we moved to Florida, you know, where everyone came before our marriage and kids there for a little while, especially for Javier. I think I, I kind of, took care of the family and he was running around, taking care of ministry for for a little while there. And we had to get back on track. I think keeping priorities straight and realizing if we're gonna dream to save the world and to make disciples and raise them up, I mean, it starts at home and they are our first disciples, our kids. And so I think starting with having dinner together every night, having family time every week, um, loving God together, putting your kids to bed at night and praying with them, reading a verse, singing. I mean, my girls sing, but I, I know more children's songs than they do. We <laughs> would sing together every night. And we had a lot of fun together when they were, when they were little, you know, and later we had our son, he was born in uh, Mexico. And so he added to the the Amaya gang, but mm. I think that was really important. And then fighting for really, you know, you have to make time for your marriage. And so over the years, we've had to fight for it and make sure to try to keep it a priority to take at least a day in the week when Javier and I would spend time together and just make sure that we're connected and talking through anything we need to talk through we've gone on prayer walks most mondays in all these years um we even this next um sunday we're going to go out and our kids actually paid for us to have a little getaway for a couple of nights and wow. then we added a couple of other nights to it we're awesome. going to get away for five days, four nights this next week, Nice, because we need that, you know, you give and give and give in the ministry and you need times to just get away, have fun, celebrate your marriage together. So those are some of the things I think it was an incredible blessing to be discipled by Wyndham and Jeannie Shaw when we were young, newlyweds and, um, we got to see them, and Gordon and Teresa Ferguson, and Alan Gloria Baird, who were our heroes, and we we watched them, and we said we want to have what they have one day. We want to be a family where our kids don't resent the church, but they see that the church and God is a blessing, and um, they also were a haven for so many disciples. And we, we said that, we talked about that when we were really young. We said we want our home to be a haven for people to come to.
1: Yeah, a couple of things that that stand out to me are um, when Diana was uh, studying the Bible, uh, our elder at the time, John Mano, had a time with her. And uh, the outcome of that time was, he said, you got to hang up the phone and you got to have more fun. <laughs> And I thought, wow, that's the greatest challenge. Shoot, I'll take that challenge. But, uh, you know, I think it's very easy for kids growing up in intense ministry households to feel like Christianity is this intense life. Right. And so it can become so so burdensome that, no, thank you. I don't want to be part of that. Mm. So it was key for us to turn off the phone, spend time with each other, and just have fun, and that that she could see and that the kids could restore a bit more of the sense of the fun of, of life and Christianity in the family, because it, it, it can get intense. Uh, and I think what Kelly mentioned regarding marriage, I think that's enormous. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I, right now we're thrilled all of our kids are within 25 minutes of each other. Nice. And I think that's on purpose that we enjoy each other's lives because they, they've seen our marriage, they enjoy this marriage. And so you want to make sure that, that eventually they, they like what they've seen and that it's for real, you know, because um, they'll, they'll want to imitate it.
2: They keep coming back. We've had them all live with us as adults <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Our son is now engaged. He's living with us for a, a little bit more here before he gets married. That's but.
1: awesome. So this empty nest thing, the they, they nest keeps coming and building. and That's right. Sending out. It gets that's,
2: refilled.
0: <laughs> that's great. That's great. Well, you've done a great job. I mean, just love your kids. It was such a high point to have, have them here and just all that they brought to it. So, just I want to say a, a little hi to Deanna and Elena. Miss you, and Dakota and Ben, and so happy for you guys being close to your family. So, miss you. You, you guys are always in the Hall of Fame of uh, Tucson, the Tucson Church of Christ. We have a little statue of each one of you guys. <laughs> there you go. Do you guys have any regrets as you look back? I mean, you've had a long ministry career, lots of ups and downs. Anything you do differently?
1: You know, you had asked this question, and I I, I chewed on that one. All the others, I thought, oh, that's so easy. This one, I thought, oh, wait a second, I need to chew on this. And the one simple one that I came to was worry. Mm -hmm. I spent way, 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 way too much time throughout these years worrying. Mm -hmm. And we have an amazing, loving, powerful, mighty God who's in charge. And he has taken care of us in an amazing, amazing way. You know, at times, because of my background, people will say, oh, you sacrificed so much. I really haven't. <laughs> our, our, our amazing Father has taken care of us in incredible ways. But I just wasted too much time worrying throughout it. Wow. So that, that'd be my one.
2: Amen. I think for me, um, I could think of things that I would definitely do differently in ministry. I think you do the best you can right. when you're in the situation, you get input, you pray, you hang in there and you make mistakes along the way and learn. But the, the bigger thing, like Javier said, worry for me, I would say insecurity. Mm. I wish I could go back and tell my younger self, <laughs> you know, um, You are chosen by God. Yes, with all of your sins and weaknesses and struggles and problems, but you're chosen by God and it's by God's power that you're going to do things and serve him and God wants to use you and don't second guess don't doubt. Don't worry about not being good enough, not being strong enough, not being spiritual enough. Just walk with God and, and trust in his having chosen you. So I wish I could have go back and take away all of those insecurities. I think I still struggle with them sometimes, but I've come a long way, you know, mm. and I finally, but that's, that's true. that's sad, right? At 50 some, I think I started believing <laughs> that, you know, God has chosen you to lead in his kingdom to serve him and he's with you and, and he's using you.
0: Yeah. Oh, you guys are amazing. I just, thank you for sharing so openly. I, I mean, there are times when I just flashback and I just cringe at some of the things I've, I've said or done. And I, I'm really glad I can't go back because it'd just be, you know, <laughs> a fruitless effort. There's just too many things to, to second guess. Yeah. <laughs> I just praise God that he's, he's able to work through our weaknesses. And, exactly. And, that's I, right. and I really appreciate Javier, you're showing, sharing that because worry is such a big deal. I mean, Jesus said that That's like, that's how you get into the third soil is the worries of this life. There's so many, yep. it's so prevalent in Matthew six. He had to say that. Don't worry, don't worry about this life. So thank you for sharing. Um, where, where are you guys? Okay. You guys are still in your prime 59. Where are you going to be in the next 10 years? What's, what's your prediction?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Uh, location, I think we'll be here in Boston. Okay. But uh, in my mind, here in Boston, while well, we help uh, out places outside of Boston.
0: Okay.
2: A dream of ours has been to, of course, we're enjoying being grandparents. So um, we really love living near nearby, near our kids, being able to help them and support them and and just enjoy them. But I do think that something that we see, and we hope that we can be a part of is encouraging the churches in Latin America. Well, of course, you already heard my passion about Latino ministers around the United States. That's huge. But I think also, um, we, we hope to see the churches in Latin America multiply their eldership. There's only, there's a church of 4,000 members in Mexico City, and just a few years ago, they appointed their first two elders. And the work is overwhelming for two people and their wives. And so they really need more there, but all over Latin America, there's very, very few elders. And so just being able, we hope to be able to travel, to be able to encourage churches. Javier's excited to go to Colombia and preach this next week, but I hope that we'll be able to do more of that In
0: the future. Wow, that's awesome! That's so exciting. Okay, this tracks back to your time in Mexico. My favorite actress, Mexican actress, is Kate Del Castillo. Did you get a chance to meet her when you're leading that arts arts media ministry? No. Okay.
1: No, and I would probably she'd run into me, and I would not know who she is. That's how
0: bad I am. Well, I know that that the- my
2: son was in a soap opera. Oh my gosh. When we were in Mexico City, he was in a soap opera called Todo por amor. Do you know at this moment when you ask me who was the main actress? <laughs> mega famous woman. I cannot think of her name. That's how that's how bad we are about artists.
0: <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I know that Mexico has a super influential uh, you know, media media program that influences all of Central America. But anyway, I just had to ask that question. (laughs) To wrap it up, what advice would you give for those who want to make this life count?
1: Romans 12, 1 and 2 is my context for that. Um, I think, again, with the worry, instead of worrying, uh, give yourself fully. Uh, What I usually say with this is only at 100%, where you see God in action, Hmm. you got to give yourself a hundred percent. If you give yourself 50%, you're not, you're, you're still haven't seen God's hand at work, but when you give yourself a hundred percent, then you can really see his will in your life. Right. And so whatever that's going to take for you to pour yourself out, to give yourself at a hundred percent, then you are really offering yourself fully to him. Hmm. And I think then he can guide you to whatever uh, powerful impact you'll be able to have. Wow.
0: That's a sermon right there in, in a short paragraph. That's amazing. Okay. Thank you. Kelly. I
2: would say set your hearts on things above and not on earthly things. I think that concept has been a North for me. You know, the only thing we get to take with us at the end of our lives is our souls and the souls of those around us. And I think, um, that's, that's something that we've always remembered and, helped Javier to go into the full-time ministry in the beginning. And I think has helped us to persevere when there have been challenges. And, um, even in the family, you know, talking to the kids about the most important thing is our relationship with God and our eternal life.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. Javier and Kelly, thank you so much for, for joining me today. It's so fantastic to hear your story. There's so many more things I'd love to ask you about, but, uh, thank you for your service for the past f- you, four, four, or five. Decades. Yeah. It's great what you're doing and all the best with you going forward.
1: Oh, likewise. Likewise. So Very much. grateful for you, bro. And, uh, I'll shout out there. Another thing for, if anybody wants to, uh, uh, guide their kids to a right place, a mission field is an amazing place to find a spiritual spouse. That's right. <laughs> and, and Rob knows how to connect. <laughs>
0: That's right. Thank you. Rob
2: and his wife are great matchmakers. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for joining the Rob Skinner podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.